And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and not be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Oh Lord, we are a needy bunch right now. We are um, in great need of knowing the God that made us, the God that sustains us, and the God that died to save us. Would you open up our ears and our hearts, and would you come in our come with your presence to our place of need? In Christ's name, amen. Why do we wear that team jersey or hat? Why is it when our team wins, we say we win? Uh, when they lost, we typically say they lost. But if they win, we say we won. You know, why is that? Well, it, it turns out there's actually a psychological term for this. It's called basking in reflected glory. Basking in reflected glory. And it's that need or desire we have to be associated with the success, the honor, the prestige, the beauty of another. And there's uh, many places we see it. It's not just in sports. It might be for our candidate to win the election. It might be our child getting that diploma or that award. That desire to be associated with that glory. And there are a couple things I think it reveals about us. Uh, one is the great hunger we have for glory. The great desire we have for honor, prestige, dignity. And it's not all bad. The Bible would say that we were made after the image and likeness of God who is glorious. So it's a hunger that we have. But also, it's a reminder of how easily that glory slips through our fingers. How hard it is to retain it in our lives. I was reminded of a, a quote from um, General George Patton. And some of you may know this. It's a pretty well-known quote. He says, For over a thousand years, Roman conquerors returning from the wars enjoyed the honor of triumph, 
a tumultuous parade. In the procession came trumpeters and musicians and strange animals from conquered territories. The conquerors rode in a triumphal chariot. Sometimes their children, robed in white, stood with them. And a slave stood behind them, the conqueror, holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear, All glory is fleeting. <laughs> all glory is fleeting. What a picture to be there with all that glory and to hear that voice. You can't hold on to it, can you? And whether it's the glory of youth, the glory of love, the glory of our achievements at work or at school, whether it is the glory that we aspire to day in and day out, we're reminded that um, we can't quite get it, can we? We find our place, ourselves in a place of constant longing to obtain it. Well, in our passage this evening, we get a glimpse of glory, what it means to reflect, to bask in the reflected glory of the Son of God, of God Himself. And here we are moving in this series we're calling In His Steps. And his steps this evening take us to this idea of beholding his glory and accepting his glory. Beholding the glory of the Son of God and accepting that glory. So let's look at those two things together as we unpack this passage. Now last week, Jesus' teaching was about the cost of following him. That those that try to hold on to their life will lose their life. In fact, he would go so far to say that those that try to cling to their own glory in this life will not only face judgment, but ultimately shame. And then he ends that teaching with a uh, sort of a mysterious verse where he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now what does that mean? Here he is standing before his disciples, and he says that. And that has led different people to wonder, well, was Jesus talking about the fact that he would return to these disciples within their generation? So he would die, raise, and come back? But that obviously didn't happen, so that can't be the meaning. Maybe the placement of this passage gives us a clue. You find in the three places in the Gospels that it's recorded we find it in the very same place right after the verse I read. The transfiguration occurs right after that verse I read. And you know that the gospel writers didn't just order things chronologically in time. They placed them to work out a theme that they were trying to get across. And so, when we look at it in that light, the sum who would be standing may have been Peter, James, and John. And the power that they would see would be the transfiguration that occurs on the mountain. And so Jesus leads them to that place. Now, in the Bible, mountains often are places where God shows up big time. You heard the Old Testament reading of Sinai. It also happens with Elijah on Mount Carmel. God shows up and reveals himself on mountains. So Jesus leads them up to a high mountain, and before their eyes were told that he is transfigured, Mark gives us his commentary. He says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, 
as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, is Mark just uh, sort of astonished by Jesus' wardrobe, or is he trying to tell us a little bit more? Mark is referencing something that goes way back to the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, where Daniel, the prophet, has a vision. He has a vision of the Ancient of Days, the Eternal Lord, and he sees the throne of heaven, and he sees the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne of heaven, and Daniel tells us, and his clothing was white as snow. And so we find a connection between Jesus being transfigured in light, clothes white as snow, effectively, and the Ancient of Days. And if we follow that out, we understand that the book of Hebrews tells us in the first chapter that God has been revealing himself all throughout human history. He once revealed himself through signs and and wonders and prophets, but in the last days of history, he would reveal himself through his son. The son, as the book of Hebrews would say, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so the transfiguration is basically a, a picture, a living picture of those two promises fulfilled, that God would show up and he would reveal himself in the glory of his only son. I mean, this, this, it had to be that way. God is a person. And yes, he could reveal himself through signs and wonders in other people, but it would have to be the fact that one day he would have to come. One of the most compelling reasons to believe in the Christian faith, it's the only faith that teaches that God is more personal than you. You are personal, and he is even more personal than you. And so he shows up in the person of Jesus. And the Son of God, as he's beaming before his disciples, is giving them a glimpse into his true nature, his divine nature. And the disciples begin to see Jesus for who he is. Now, some of you um, may have heard um, of a stunt, a little trick that the uh, well-known singer Adele played back when her album was released. Uh, She did something that was... uh, really funny, and if you watch it on YouTube, it's, um, it, it made me laugh. But basically, she decides to disguise herself and go to uh, an Adele impersonation contest. So she disguises herself so no one can see. She calls herself Jenny, and she shows up, and there's hidden cameras and hidden microphones, and there she is with these group of women, all getting ready to go on stage and sing, hopefully to win the contest, and they sort of dress like Adele. And uh, while the singers are up there, she's making little comments, you know, like, well, boy, she's really into it, isn't she? Or, you know, look how she did her hand there. That's just like Adele. And uh, and at one point she goes, I think I feel sick. I'm too nervous. I don't think I can do this. And they come around her and comfort her. And then she finally gets out there on stage, and uh, she kicks off her shoes, and she starts to sing, and she messes it up. And go, can we start again, please? And by this time, all the other women are sitting, you know, in the auditorium facing that way. And they're going, oh, boy, you know, you think she's going to make it. And then, you know, she finally sings. It's going, she sings the first line, and it's like this domino effect. The first woman, you know, goes. <laughs> and she looks at this other one, and then there's this one naysayer the whole time. No, it's not her. It's not her. And by the end of the song, these women are crying. You know, they're singing the songs with her, you know. So, you know, here she was, this one that was hidden among them, just seemed like them, but then her glory is revealed. 
the disciples have an Adele moment. <laughs> right? The disciples think about this. You know, we read the Gospels where, um, you know, we get to see a lot of the highlights of what Jesus did. But he was with them for three years. That's a lot of days. That's a lot of hours. And when they spent time with him, he was just like them. He ate what they ate. He talked like them. He looked like them. And it would be very easy, right, to say, well, he's just like us. Their conceptions about who he should be should be like how I think. The way I think about the Messiah ought to be the way he thinks about the Messiah. And so God here reminds them, he's not like you. He's glorious. He's set apart. And this glory is unique to him. We live in a day right now in, in sort of the climate of religious pluralism that teaches us that it's democratic and fair that all the religions are the same. You know, all religions are teaching the same thing, and if there are great teachers, they're basically all said the same thing. And so we're preached a message of sameness, not uniqueness. You're not allowed to be unique, and if you are unique, you're, you're being arrogant. Well, God doesn't play by those rules here. Even among the great religious teachers of Israel, you notice here that Moses and Elijah, the great leaders, they're not shining. And God doesn't say to them, he doesn't say from heaven, these are my sons, listen to them. He says, this is my son, listen to him. And in the end, it's a very important, critical, wonderful thing. Israel had had for hundreds of years prophets and kings and priests, some good and some bad, but those prophets, priests, and kings could not get them out of the fix they were in. They could not deliver them. The disciples had a view of what a Messiah ought to be, a political Messiah, but that Messiah would not get them out of the fix they were in. You and I might have lots of religious teachers that all teach the same thing, and all religions teach the same thing. It will not get us out of the fix that we're in. It has not gotten us out of the fix that we're in. We need something glorious, something greater. We need God himself to do something. The unique Son of God. We don't need more of the same, right? <laughs> more of the same. And yet we have to have that moment, that transfigure moment, where we begin to see Jesus in a new way. Um, there's a favorite testimony I have, and it's from a man that grew up in a Hindu priestly family. He's a scholar. His name's Krister Sersing. And you can read his essay in the book Finding God at Harvard. And several years ago, I, I shared this testimony, and some of you will remember it, but obviously we have a lot of change here, so some of you will never heard it before. Listen to what he says. And this comes on the heels of a friend of his, a fellow Hindu friend of his, came up to him one day and said, I have found the one who is more powerful than all the swamis and the gurus. And uh, Sarah Singh says, when I heard that, I, I was very offended by it and thought it was a very arrogant thing to say, but I was too desperate not to see if it was true. I was too desperate. And so he says this, I tried to incorporate Jesus into the pantheon of deities arrayed on my altar. Each morning after I offered incense and mantras before the altar, I would then turn to recite the mantras to the picture of Jesus, besides that of Gandhi and other gurus. I had begun to include Jesus in my prayers, but I had the uneasy feeling that Jesus did not belong to their company, that he was without equal, and that he would not wish to be honored in a way that made him one among many, just another avatar among others. 
It soon dawned on me that he, he did not belong to the company of the gurus or even the deities on the altar. He was unique, utterly different. I did not know how to worship and honor him, and yet in the depths of my heart, I desired to adore him. Can you resonate with the hunger for glory that he had, this man had? That he desired something that was greater than the status quo, something that was beyond him, that he could only find in the unique Son of God of glory. Maybe that's something for you to consider for the first time. You're not in the Christian faith. But I would put this question to those of you that have been Christians maybe for a long time. Will the Jesus of 2016 be more glorious to you than the Jesus of 2015? Will Jesus, in your estimation, become more majestic, more powerful, more gracious, more loving in his life? Because he ought to be, if we're growing and understanding this glory. And that's just not a theological question before you. It's a transformation question. Because that's what we're told here. You know, the word to transfigure in the Greek means to be radically transformed. There are lots of ways that you and I seek to be transformed. Uh, I think one of the chief ways is through our own discipline and effort. Uh, it may be through knowledge. Uh, it might be theological knowledge or some other sort of knowledge. It might be some, through some surface changes. You lose some weight. You go get a new wardrobe. There's lots of ways that we try to be transformed. But the gospel tells us that the primary way that you really get transformed is by seeing Jesus by seeing Jesus Christ and his glory, the Son of God, as he laid before us. And in one sense, this shouldn't surprise you and I. Uh, I was reading an article this week entitled Dreams of Glory, and it's about the research that's been going on at universities, and this was University of Pennsylvania, on the power of daydreams finding out that as people daydream, the things that they imagine that they want to aspire to and the future that they might imagine has something to do with the way their life is shaped and the decisions that they make. They're daydreams. And you don't need research to know that. I mean, right? It, it, we see it in the life of the kid who, you know, the budding young scientist who read this week about Einstein's gravitational waves and actually understood it. I read a couple articles. I couldn't understand it but write something great like that that'll make that guy go on to aspire to be a great scientist. Or maybe it's the, the young kid that watches Ovechkin pass the 500 mark, right? That'll be the moment where he begins to daydream about his future. Or maybe it's the, the girl that got to sing next to Adele. I don't know. But if those sort of encounters in our minds and our dreams have a transforming effect, can you imagine what it would be like if you really could see the Son of God, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Redeemer of all of life, the one that made you, the one that made the glorious heavens that take your breath away, the one that made the people that do the amazing things that take your breath away. If you could see Him, do you imagine what the transforming effect would be? It would be powerful, an understatement. A glimpse of glory. And this is exactly what the New Testament teaches. If you go to the book of Corinthians, we're actually told that as we reflect the Lord's glory, as we see him, we are transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. As you behold Jesus Christ, you're changed. How does that work? 
I know that sounds like a theological thing that's just hanging in the clouds. How does that work? Well, I think it works a lot like Valentine's Day. Let me explain that. Now, uh, I probably need to do a lot of explaining because Valentine's Day, right, for some people, is like, it's, I, I hate it. It's a holiday. It's the worst holiday in the world, okay? I, I, that, that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is how one's affection grows. How, how does, I don't care if it's a friend or a lover, how does, how does affection grow? This is what happens. You turn over in your mind and heart their excellencies, their qualities. Maybe it's their faithfulness. Maybe it's their patience. Maybe it's the way they serve. Maybe it's the way they sacrifice. But as we turn those things over in our hearts, we begin to get a transformed image. Our affections change, actually. We start to feel differently, and we start to act differently. The same is true with the Son of God. As you begin to meditate on the glory of Jesus' compassion, go to Luke 7, as he loves a sinful woman. As you begin to meditate on the glory of Jesus's grace as he has a meal with a betrayer, Judas. As we see the glory of his love as he pours out his life on the cross, as you and I see him, it's there we begin to get changed in the heart, and then we get changed in the mind, and we get changed in the actions in our life. What I'm asking you is this, is this missing in your strategy of change? As you think about an area right now that you've been trying to change in, is meditating on the glory of the Son of God have anything to do with your strategy of changing? I don't know how you'd answer that. But you will only get to that place by meditating on Him. That's the key. That's the, that's the thing that shoots us off into a new place of change. So, the first part is beholding his glory, but the second part is this, accepting his glory. Now, the ancient Romans believed if their heroes would achieve enough greatness, they could skip death. They could pass over death. And in some ways, Jesus' disciples had a version of this. They believed when their Messiah would come, there's no way that he could suffer and die. He would only move from strength to victory. The idea of a Messiah hero being crucified was incompatible for them. This is part of the challenge that Jesus has been facing. And it may be the reason why the Apostle Peter says, let me build some shelters for you. Let me build some tabernacles for you. You may have wondered, why in the world would Peter say something random like that? It is likely that Peter's sitting there and he goes, this is the moment. We got Moses, we got Elijah, and now we got Jesus the Messiah. We're going to set up some shelters, and they will rule and reign from this mountain. They will rule and reign and cause their victory to flow from this mountain. But Jesus' reign of glory would not begin on a mountain. It would begin on a hill where he was crucified. It would begin by a cross, by a death. If we go to the Gospel of Luke and we read the account of the transfiguration, it actually gives us a little window into what he was talking about with Moses and Elijah. And it says that he spoke with them about his departure, or another word that translated is his exodus. And if you know the Bible, immediately when you hear exodus, you think about Israel being freed from bondage and death from Egypt and being led into the promised land. 
And Jesus' exodus would do the same thing. For all those that believe in him, we will free them from their bondage of their sin, the judgment of death, and he leads them to a promised land, a place of glory. But it had to be that way, or there would be no hope of glory. And the disciples struggle with this. And this is likely why God, the Father, speaks from heaven and he says, this is my son, listen to him. Because what happened last week, if you remember, Peter would not listen to him. Jesus was trying to say, I must suffer and die. And Peter rebuked him. I won't hear it. And so God says, listen to him. Listen to what he says about the need of suffering leading to glory. And that's not an easy thing for us to hear either, is it? Because we struggle with the disciples and the apostles as well. I mean, I, I would ask you about your daydreams of glory. How many of them actually have suffering as part of the story? I have to tell you, most of my daydreams of glory do not have me suffering. They have me ruling from the mountain. They have me moving to a place where it's only from victory to strength. And maybe the same is for you. As they go down the mountain, Jesus tells them again that he'll suffer and die. And then he uses John the Baptist as an illustration, an Elijah-type figure who was martyred, had his head cut off for his faithful witness. And then after Jesus would raise from the dead, he would meet some disciples on the Emmaus Road, and he would go to the law and the prophets whom Moses and Elijah represent on that mountain. All the scripture, the law and the prophets, and he will show them, don't you see that all of the scriptures were always saying that Messiah would have to suffer and die. He would have to be crucified if we were to come to a place of glory. And in it, there's a couple things that I think it reveals about us. One is, you and I most often get our categories and definitions of glory from the world. Our ideas of glory are from the world, from the culture. They're surface ideas. It's, glory is being rich. Glory is being beautiful. Glory is having a stature and title in this town. And maybe suffering is a way to get to that place, but it's a surface glory, a glory that comes and goes. Remember, it's like, you know, imagine yourself, and maybe all of us should do this. When you're in that moment of glory, imagine that servant behind you whispering, all glory is fleeting. It might be the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking. But also we see in this that we fail to see our true enemy of glory. It's not the fact that I don't have money, or I don't have the body that I want, or it's the boss that's stopping me from getting to the place I want. That's not the true enemy of glory. The true enemy of glory is sin. That's the true enemy of glory. That's the thing that's seeking to destroy you from the inside out. That's the thing that mars life the way it should be. You know, it, it's the glory of our selflessness that is threatened by selfishness. It is the glory of gluttony that threatens the glory of generosity, right? It's the glory of pride that thwarts the glory of kindness. It's sin that threatens our ultimate glory, what you and I would become. But the good news of the gospel is this, that God won't let that happen. Even though we would say to Jesus, no, do it this way. He goes, get behind me, I'll do it this way. 
Because if Jesus doesn't take that exodus, you and I are still in bondage to our addicted idols and our selfishness. We're still living with the judgment for the way that we've lived selfishly hanging over us. But as he takes that path of suffering, all that goes away for those that believe in him. And what begins to happen is God not only renews you now, he begins this project of glory in your life. And I see this in you. I see, I've seen this in so many people, people before they come to that moment and after that moment, the way that God beautifies them. But also, he gives us a vision for the final day of glory. We're told in the Bible that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's a wild idea. I'm sitting here telling you we need to get a better understanding of Jesus Christ and his glory and we'll be changed. And what we're told is when you finally die and if you know Christ and you appear before him, you will see him and you will be changed. I mean, you will see him and bam, you will be changed. Because of the glory that's before him. He is the one that bring many sons to glory. He's the one that prayed in John 17, the glory that you've given me, Father, I have given to them so they may be one. And there we see the glory is not just about us. It's not just about my individual life. The glory is about community. The glory is about city. The glory is about country and world. Are you sharing your glory with the city? Are you sharing it with people in this community? You have glory. God has given it to you. Do you share it? And yet now you and I, as the Apostle Paul would say, we've got this glory in jars of clay, meaning, you know, we're struggling and we're still suffering and we see little glimpses of it. Francis Schaeffer famously said, we're glorious ruins. We're like the statue of David. There's beauty, but, you know, the arms lopped off and the nose is off. We're struggling, you know, we're carrying this glory, but it's so certain that the New Testament talks about it in past tense. You are glorified already. It's a done deal because of the death and resurrection of the Son of God in the eternal weight of glory then outweighs all the stuff that we're struggling with. And I think where it lands is this. You and I begin to accept God's rule in our life. We begin to accept a new way of glory, a new path of glory. Each of us right here has a highway. We have a path. We think about it every day. How am I going to get to become the person I want to be? And the Son of God is saying, I want you to come over to here. <laughs> I want to take you on a new journey, a new path. And this is the call to live in his steps. This is what he means for everybody in this room to experience. Let's pray that we do. We thank you, Father, for your son who did not avoid suffering on his path to glory. Oh, Lord, would you transform each person here as we have a vision of who we were meant to be in Christ. And it's in his glorious name that we ask it. Amen.